Love is the spirit of this church and service its law. This is our great covenant to dwell together in peace, to seek truth in love, and to help one another. These are the words of Reverend James Vila Blakey. And we light this chalice now in the names of love, the love of family that brings us into being, allows us to bloom, and then sends us on our way with courage, knowing that we can return no matter what. The love of partnered hearts that teach us to trust and help us to know that who we are does not end at the barrier of our own skin. The love of friends who help us feel seen and sing our song back to us when we cannot hear it with our ears alone. The love of community, the love of community that bathes us in belonging and calls us to see the needs of others as our own. And the greatest love, the love that will not let us go, even in our fear, even in our failure, even when we are lonely and lost. Love invites us home. If we listen, it is doing so even today. I invite you to join us in singing Spirit of Life. We're going to sing it in English, 123, in the Gray Hymnal, and then in Spanish, Fuente de Amor, and those words are in your order of service. Welcome to our service here at First Unitarian this morning. Whether you're new or have been coming here for years, we welcome you to our service and congratulations, you've made it on a three-day weekend. We're glad you've joined us, whether from near or far. And speaking of far, at the nine o'clock service, we have at least 75 people joining us online. And they can see us from this camera to the left of the pulpit and so why don't we give them a vigorous wave so they can see us, and we will visualize them waving back at us. Now that we're in a waving mode, take a look around you in the sanctuary and see if there is somebody that you recognize and give them a wave, or somebody that looks nice. You all look nice to me, so I'm going to wave at all of you. Our church has a strong social justice commitment. Our first, second, and Eighth principle, 
are, number one, the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Two, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. Number eight, we covenant to affirm and promote journeying towards spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other depressions in ourselves and our institutions. People of all identities and intersectionalities are welcome here at First Unitarian. My name is John Eldridge, and I, my pronouns are he and him, and I am a cisgender male. I'll be your worship leader this morning, and if you do have any questions about the worship service itself or any announcements we're going to be giving you later on in the service, please see me after the service, and I'll be sure to either answer your questions or I'll refer you to a person who does know. So here we are in this space, at this moment, as one community. Come, let us worship together. When I see someone going through a storm of hurt and unfairness, of anger and sadness, when the sun disappears and the skies grow dark and I see there is fear, I ask myself, what can I do to help let the light back in? I put my hand on my heart and listen, and that is where I find the answer. I have compassion. I act with tenderness. I am love. I can listen and not say a word. I can be there. Love is being present. I can hug and hold and say, everything will be all right. Love is comfort. I can speak softly and choose my words and actions carefully. Love is gentle. I can give thanks for all I have and am able to share. Love is gratitude. I can keep my mind and my body safe and healthy. Love is taking care of me. I can express what's important to me. Love is creative. I can know that no one is perfect. Love is understanding. I can do my best to make things better when something is wrong. Love is effort. I can celebrate those I've loved before. Love is remembering. I can find goodness in a kind word, a helping hand, or a shared smile. Love is tiny gestures. I can breathe the air that the whole world shares and know all creatures are made from the very same stardust. Love is connection. When the clouds roll in, for others and for me, I know now that there is something I can do. I can let my heart lead the way. I am love. Let's come into a time of quiet and meditation. I invite you to find a comfortable seat, whatever allows your body to be relaxed but poised. Maybe your feet are on the floor. Maybe you're feeling where your hands are resting. 
Let's take a deep inhalation, maybe draw our shoulders up to our ears. And exhale, soften them down. Let's do that one more time. Inhale up. Let's turn our attention to our breath. Don't try to control our breath. Just simply be a witness to it. And if you get distracted, which you will, just gently draw your mind back to your breath again and again. Let's have a moment of silence. Freedom is not waking up one morning without chains. It is something more. Freedom is not having the keys to all the doors. It is something more. Freedom is not about creating yourself alone, a world apart. It is something more. Freedom is living together, deciding, choosing. Freedom is loving, understanding, and fighting so that everyone has freedom. Libertad, no es despertar una mañana sin cadenas, es algo más. Libertad, nos poseer las llaves de todas las puertas, es algo más. Libertad, nos construir de solitario un mundo aparte. Es algo más. Libertad es convivir, decidir, elegir. Libertad es amar, comprender y luchar para que did we bring in with us? What did we bring in with us into this sanctuary this morning? What's keeping us from being fully present? We live in painful, anxious times, witness to horrors in the Middle East, witness to horrors at home, the loss of our bodily autonomy. So much to be anxious about in this election year. <clears throat> I invite you to consider what you're carrying. Who are the people and places that are on your heart today? And at the sound of the chime, you're invited to speak those names of the places and things and people that are on your heart into the sanctuary that we may share them. To all these we add 
Sarah Friedrich, who is struggling with health challenges. May she find comfort. And our pianist, Lydia Clark, who is healing from eye surgery. May her recovery be swift. And Raven Reed's mother, Elizabeth Runyon, who is struggling with cognitive decline. May the entire family be in our hearts. And Victoria Rosequist and her son Riley, who, who are seeking stable housing and navigating family trials. May they find sanctuary. And Judy Riley, who we keep in our hearts as she moves to assisted living, may she feel at home in her new situation. And we celebrate with Brenda Cole, who was accepted into the Cherry Hill Seminary for Spiritual Direction Program. May her wisdom continue to benefit this community. All these and all those prayers held in our hearts unsaid but keenly felt, all these we lift up to the great powers of healing and renewal known by many names. And we join our hearts in prayer, join our hearts in prayer using the words of Reverend Lori Horton Ludwig. Spirit of life and love, light within and without, mystery from which we all have emerged, within which we live and we die. Be with us now as we allow ourselves to drop into the silence and stillness at the center of our being. As people of faith, we seek to live in a spirit of life, love, a spirit of community, justice, and peace. And yet in so many corners of the world, both far and near, we see divisiveness and hate. If we look deep within ourselves, perhaps we will even find those shadow energies there too. We struggle to respond to the outer world and our inner dramas in ways that manifest love. At times we may fear that love will not be strong enough. At times we may question whether love really is at the root of all things in this world with so much struggle and suffering and discord. We may struggle to hold on to our faith in love knowing that if all things come from one source, we proclaim, that source must somehow both hold hate as well as love, violence as well as peace, evil as well as good. This is the mystery within which we live and die. These are the questions that haunt our days and nights, and yet we are not without hope. Our struggles and our questions testify to our longing for peace, for love. Our very longings are born out of that mystery that we dare to address as spirit of life and love. In the stillness and silence of our own heart, we read the imprint of love created not by our own will, but planted there for us to discover. By what or whom, we cannot know, and yet it is there, a clue, a talisman, a beacon, a light within. May it keep hope alive, even as we dwell in mystery. May it guide us all as we seek to act wisely and well. May it help us be vessels of compassion for one another and for our world. May it be so. Peace be with you and also with you. Solo le pido a Dios was written by Leon Hierco in Argentina in the late 70s. And this protest song has gone around the world. It's been translated into more than 25 languages and is sung by singers including the composer himself, Leon Hierco, Mercedes Sosa, Pete Seeger, Bruce Springsteen, Shakira, U2, and countless others. The translation, I only ask of God that I not be indifferent to pain, that the arid death does not find me empty and lonely without having done enough.
I only ask of God that I not be indifferent to justice, that they do not slap me on the other cheek after a claw scratched me. I only ask of God that I not be indifferent to war. It is a huge monster, and it crushes the poor innocence of the people. I only ask of God that I not be indifferent to deception. If a traitor is more powerful than the many, that the many don't forget him easily. I only ask of God that I not be indifferent to the future. Hopeless is the one who has to leave and live a different culture. The sermon sirens are going off. They're announcing there's going to be a sermon now. <clears throat> Love that when the fire department does that for me. Tomorrow is Martin Luther King Day. And I want to give a shout out to the folks from First Unitarian who held a pancake breakfast yesterday at the church and then went downtown for the march. Y'all went, right? Anybody else go on the march? Oh, right. Peggy, of course. That's great. The pancakes were great. The company was even better. Uh, unfortunately, I had a funeral to officiate, so I couldn't join the marching part, but I hope y'all stayed warm, at least warmish. <clears throat> These days, I think the primary focus of our memories of Dr. King are about racial equity. So it's possible to forget that Dr. King was also very concerned about poverty. In fact, he started the original Poor People's Campaign that's carried on by Reverend William Barber today. 
In his last book that Dr. King wrote before his untimely death, he said, the curse of poverty has no justification in our age. It is socially as cruel and blind as the practice of cannibalism at the dawn of civilization, when men ate each other because they had not yet learned to take food from the soil or to consume the abundant animal life behind them. The time has come for us to civilize ourselves by the total, direct, and immediate abolition of poverty. I am now convinced that the simplest approach will prove to be the most effective. The solution to poverty is to abolish it directly by a now widely discussed matter, the guaranteed income. End of quote. And that was from the book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, that he wrote in 1967. And his ideas were visionary. Universal basic income is still on the table now. There actually was a trial version done for immigrant families in rural communities in New Mexico just this past couple of years and had really good outcomes. The New Mexico Economic Relief Working Group selected 330 undocumented families across the state and gave them 500 bucks a month for a year. And after a year, they found that the participants reported higher rates of employment. But actually, there were more people working when they got the, the money rather than less. More stable work schedules, improved housing and food security, and improved educational outcomes for children. All for 500 lousy bucks a month. It turns out you can really, you really can solve problems with money. Anyways, I'm, I'm thinking about poverty today. And I'm thinking about the politicians who are going to attend the city's Martin Luther King Day breakfast tomorrow. And certain city councilors who will attend, who voted against rent control, who voted against proposals that would create housing, who will talk about Dr. King's dream, no doubt, but without waking up and doing the work of making it a reality. This month in the church, our theological theme is liberating love. Liberating love can mean a lot of things. Last week, Reverend Angela shared a continuation of her spiritual autobiography. And I was really moved to hear about the ways that love has changed and even liberated her in her personal life and in her vocation. Next week, she'll be back to talk about that love and what love, especially self-love, what love asks of us. The Sunday after that, Angela and I will both be on the platform for a question box sermon where you get to ask the questions and we attempt to answer them. So next week is when you can submit the questions. So start thinking about your questions now and be sure to bring them in next week. Folks on Zoom, same thing. You can email them to us. Anyway, this week I'm focusing less on love and more on liberating. Specifically, I want to talk about liberation theology. And to describe it, I need to set the context. So liberation theology was created by Catholic theologians in Latin America and South America. Latin and South America are places that have been exploited since the time that the colonizers from Europe first began arriving in the 1400s. Centuries later, by the 1960s, the economic conditions of these regions were considered the most unequal in the entire world small group of landowners kept the vast majority of the population in a state of subsistence while the landowners grew wealthy and further entrenched their power. And it was at that time in the 60s when some Catholic priests in Latin America and South America began to read the Bible from the perspective of Jesus' interactions with the poor. For example, they read Matthew 25 verse 40 where on the day of judgment God asks what each person did for the poor and needy. And God says, I say to you, whether you did to one of these whatever you did to the one of these least of my brothers of mine, you did it for me. Whatever you did to the least of my brothers, you did it for me. I actually have the phrase Matthew 25:40 tattooed on my forearm as a reminder of society's most vulnerable, my obligation to society's most vulnerable people and also as a vestige of my now abandoned Catholicism. And I got some good things out of it. The priests developing liberation theology came to the understanding that the message of Jesus requires that the poor and needy must be a priority. 
that there is, a, that is, there must be a preferential option for the poor. It doesn't mean that only the poor deserve attention and support. It just means that their needs must come first. And these teachings became a movement. Throughout Latin America, based communities were formed. And these were local Christian groups composed of 10 to 30 folks apiece who studied the Bible and attempted to meet their parishioners' immediate needs for things like food and water and electricity. And most of these based communities were led by lay people. And at the same time, Catholic leaders were beginning to speak out against the governments that enforced this class inequality. You may remember me a couple years ago speaking about Father Oscar Romero, who was a priest in El Salvador. As a young priest, or a, a, a sort of a, a priest before he became prominent, he was kind of known as a conservative drudge when he was appointed as bishop in 1977, which is, which is exactly why he was appointed. He was bookish. He was more concerned with heady theology than public policy. And because of that, he was considered a safe choice for the powers of the day. In other words, he was considered a company man. It was a real time of upheaval in El Salvador. Over the course of the 70s, there were several coups by the military, including one in 1979 that overthrew a democratically elected president. I'm not going to go into the United States' role in that, but it, there was a role. But when Romero's friend and fellow priest, who was organizing the poor, was killed by the government in 1977, Romero could not unsee what he had seen. And he evolved, and he became an outspoken critic of the government. For his efforts, he was assassinated while saying mass in 1980. That was 34 years ago. And today I'm wearing a, a stole with his image. The collusion of the Vatican with the dictators of El Salvador is one of the several reasons that liberation theology has been a touchy subject for the Catholic establishment. In addition, the connection between libera liberation theology and socialism created tension. Popes John Paul II and Pope Benedict were actively hostile to the, that theology. The current Pope Francis is much more welcoming to these ideas, I'm glad to say. The fact that liberation theology also criticizes colonization is awkward for the church because it was Pope Alexander VI who issued the papal bull that laid out the doctrine of discovery in 1493. And this is a decree that stated that any land not inhabited by Christians could be claimed and exploited by Christian rulers. Just gave them carte blanche to do whatever they want. The consequences of this policy, this, this papal bull, this, this allegedly message from God, were in full display in Latin America in the 1960s. So the church's defensiveness about liberal theology, liberation theology, it's not exactly a surprise. But what about us? What would a Unitarian Universalist liberation theology, what would it look like? Well, to start with, we use our non-dogmatic, as we know, and we don't rely on a single text or concept of the divine. That means that any liberation theology that we come up with has to come from something else than just a reading of the New Testament. As an aside, I frankly, I find religions that rely on the Bible exclusively to the, to, to the exclusion of everything else, I find them very frustrating because there's so much rich material out there. I recently had a conversation with a colleague about that. She's a UU minister and she's starting a doctoral program that will use the arts to interpret the Bible which does sound kind of cool, but I asked her, why just focus on the Bible? And she said, well, the Bible is full of human stories, people trying and falling short, people dealing with terrible loss, struggling to make meaning of things. And I said, sure, those things are all in the Bible, but they're also in the novels of Charles Dickens and Alice Walker, and I can read those without a gendered God. She was not impressed with my response, and maybe some folks here are not either. Onward. So Gustavo Gutierrez was a priest in Peru who wrote one of the seminal texts about liberation theology. And I think it might be helpful as we think about UU liberation theology to hear this quote from him. Gutierrez had three bottom line principles about life and death at the bottom. First, 
Material poverty is never good, but an evil to be opposed. It is not simply an occasion for charity, but a degrading force that denigrates human dignity and ought to be opposed and rejected. Second, poverty is not the result of fate or laziness, but is due to structural injustices that privilege some while marginalizing others. Poverty is not inevitable. Collectively, the poor can organize and facilitate social change. Third, poverty is a complex reality and is not limited to its economic dimension. To be poor is to be insignificant. Poverty means an early and unjust death. So as we, as we see, as described by Gutierrez, liberation theology is actually a theology of action, of reality. Fortunately, that is a strength for Unitarian Universalism. Unitarian Universalists, Unitarian Universalists consider service to the larger community a core practice of our faith. And there is a complication, though. As Unitarian Universalists, we are pretty sophisticated in our analysis, and a lot of us talk about intersectionality. And I know intersectionality is a very jargony word. Intersectionality is looking at all the different kinds of identities a person can have and the way that these identities can overlap and with that reduce or increase the amount of oppression a person experiences. So a person might be queer, which is a historically marginalized and targeted identity, but they may also be white and cisgender. So their public experience of queerness is different from a person who is queer and a person of color. That's how intersectionality works. And I like intersectionality. It helps us understand situations with more nuance. But in the case of liberation theology, I want to resist the urge to make this an intersectional theology. Instead, just limit our thinking to being about poverty. And my preference is that a UU liberation theology would explicitly call on us to address the material conditions for the poor. Not their spirits, not their eternal souls, but where they sleep, what they eat, what health care they need. Now, from an intersectional perspective, the causes of poverty could be gender or race or sexuality, but the focus here is considering the material conditions, their physical well-being. To do this work, we, we, us, need to consider our relationship with money and class as a faith tradition. And here's a really important thing. We need to stop the myth that we are a faith tradition that is made up of people who are financially comfortable. We need to stop the myth that we are all financially comfortable. For, so, for sure, some of us do enjoy economic security, but there are many of us here who do not. There are people in this congregation who do not have secure housing, who live from paycheck to paycheck, who are barely making it. So our solidarity with the poor isn't a theoretical thing that happens outside our walls, something that happens at a distance. We have to embrace the fact that folks in this sanctuary right now are watching on Zoom are struggling. Our people are struggling. So it's important that we bust that myth that Unitarian Universalists are financially well off because people who don't feel like well off feel like they don't fit in here. They feel shame about not having money. They are embarrassed during the pledge campaign. This is not just a thing about First Unitarian Albuquerque. If you heard Angela's sermon last week, she talked, about, she talked about feeling like an outsider because she was a person living in a trailer park, but she was attending First Unitarian in Portland, which is a big, affluent, presenting church. It's a really common experience in UU churches. I'd even call it our dirty little secret. And I think that changing that part of our culture starts with acknowledging our social locations. I know that as a church, we've done a lot of good work in the past few years coming to understand how being white or being a person of color will change one's perspective. So now it's time for us to consider how our class changes our perspective. What are our blind spots? What are our sore spots? Do we make unconscious assumptions about the financial means of the people around us? Are we comfortable talking about class and money? Rather than white fragility, do we sometimes give in to affluence fragility? And affluence fragility would be when we become defensive, when we are confronted with our wealth privilege. 
This is just the beginning of a much bigger conversation that will take years to evolve. But the conversation does not have to be all guilt and anguish. In fact, that's a very poor platform for having this conversation or doing any kind of change, frankly. I think it can start in a really simple way. And I want to share a story. I have a great financial advisor. And the first time I met them, we had a conversation that you'd expect. We walked through all my assets. We talked about my debt, so much debt, and what my plans were for retirement. It turns out that dying at my desk is not a plan. Anyways, after all those questions about the sad facts of the way I handle money, my financial advisor put down their pen and then asked me, when you were a child, what was your attitude towards money? When you were a child, what was your attitude towards money? That stopped me cold. Now, I've done a lot of therapy, but no one has ever asked me that question. And it is so fundamental. It has an impact of so many things. And as I sat with it, a lot of feelings came up that I had not explored before. It was new territory for me. And so as a, a first step in this long process of self-exploration, I invite you to think about that as well. You know, every Sunday we offer a question to think about and maybe discuss with your people. So this is our question today, for today. When you were a child, what were your attitudes about money? What messages were you receiving about money? In this church, there are so many people doing the serious work of trying to live into our UU values. Father Oscar Romero became a saint in 2018. But when I'm at this congregation, I feel like I'm surrounded by saints. I know that we can do this work of growth. I know that we can become even more welcoming. And I want to include, conclude with the words of UU Reverend Molly House Gordon. She says, I want to be part of a faith that practices the best good news. That systems of oppression and death will not be allowed the final say. And that even we can join our voices in song and spirit, resisting them. That suffering of the body will not have the final say, and that even we can show up as tender hands of care and nurture. That freedom is growing like a seed in every abandoned place, and that even we can bring watering cans and party together in the shade of that garden. That there is a spirit of liberation living and moving in the world, not beholden to static categories or labels that we try to put on a shelf, but shining forth in our very lives. That we can become a community that shows up in body for the wholeness of the spirit, that declares each life holy and beloved, and that treats each one as such. May it be so. We will take our offering in a moment, remembering the wise words of Jacob Trapp. Our religion is not a creed, but a way of life. To be religious is to be grateful for how much we are given and to give in return. Our Change for the Future partner this month through February is Casa Q, a caring organization that provides safe living for LGBTQ youth and their allies through housing, services, and advocacy. You may mark a pew envelope CFF or place coins in the basket to benefit Casa Q. We will now gratefully receive the offering. About 20 years ago, a dedicated group of Spanish-speaking Unitarian Universalist ministers centered in San Jose, California, started collecting songs for a Spanish-language hymnal supplement. In 2010, this book was published, Las Voces del Camino, and we do not yet own this book for our whole congregation, but our choir has been singing out of the book, and you have been hearing Tanya sing a number of pieces from this book today. There's a song in the book, Romero de America, about the bishop who was assassinated in El Salvador. And the translation is this, thus, the little sparrows of the countryside are anxiously searching since the day you went away. Their chirping is singing your absence. 
When the fatal impact took your life from your body, your soul soared triumphant, spreading among the common people. You left us, Monsignor Oscar Arnulfo Romero, but your example remained, enlightening the poor. You asked in the name of God that the violence be stopped, and they aimed at you so as to take away all hope. Your message in favor of peace reached all corners of your country, El Salvador, and of Latin America. What is generously given is received in gratitude. Thank you on behalf of First Unitarian and Casa Q. We have announcements. We do. We have three announcements this morning. The Board of Directors and our Director of Finance, Brian Hackett, will host an open question and answer session about the proposed 2024 budget on Saturday, January 20th at 1 o'clock and it'll be held on Zoom. The meeting ID is in the same one we use for this service, if you're joining us on Zoom, but it is also printed in the order of service, in today's order of service. You'll find that um, ID of the announcement for that. And our annual congregational meeting is in two weeks, on Sunday, January 28th, 2 p.m., right here in the sanctuary and also on Zoom. Uh, plan on coming to worship that morning and stay for a soup lunch fundraiser for our 75th anniversary fund. Yes, it's our 75th anniversary this year. Crazy. After lunch, you can meet the candidates for this year's Change for the Future recipients and find out more about their organizations and inform your vote for them during the, the congregational meeting. And we're wondering if you can bring a pot of soup or help, the the, the, help serve or clean up if you can do that, please see Lara Magnuson, our Director of Congregational Life. She'll be out at the Connections table 
after the service. And you may know that the annual meeting, at the annual meeting, we vote on our, our budget for 2024. The congregation approves the budget. That's the way we roll in Unitarian Universalism. And Angela shared last week that this is not a good budget. Barring a change in the amount that's pledged, we're looking at more than a $100,000 deficit. And that doesn't include, as the budget set lies right now, even with a $100,000 budget, there is no cost of living increases for the staff. Now, Angela and I will be fine, but I do worry about our staff who have families. So if you haven't pledged, please do. And if you have, please consider raising your pledge. And if you do not have the means to do either, that is fine too. We still love you. Thank you. As Bob mentioned, this is the 75th anniversary of our church, and we do have some activities. And the first of those is that we're going to have a Histories and Mysteries tour at 12.15 p.m. today. And this is a way that we can find out more about how this church got started and learn some of the secrets of the campus on the way. Be one of the first 15 people to meet in front of the sanctuary right here to get started. That will be at 12.15 today. All right, I uh, just want to welcome our visitors. We're so glad that you're here. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to John or I. And there's a, a welcome table over there too if you want to check in. I think if you, sign, if you like sign up for the newsletter, you get a mug. So, you know, if you don't have a cupboard full of mugs. <laughs> Anyways, we're so glad you're here. But let's all rise in body or spirit for our peace blessing. One hand on our hearts, the other hand reaching out to the people around us, folks on Zoom. The 75 of you, you want to turn on your cameras so you can see each other's faces. Let your faces be a prayer. Blessed be. I invite you to remain on your feet and pull out your teal hymnal, turquoise hymnal, open to number 1028, The Fire of Commitment. This is a wonderful hymn by Jason Shelton and Mary Catherine Morn. May we place love at the center of all that we do. Go in peace and practice radical love.